Good morning. Good morning, Cross Point. How are we doing today? Happy New Year's Eve. It is a uh, great opportunity to, to be here with you today. My name is Jason Van Ness. I am the teaching pastor here. So if you're in the life group and you go through the material, um, like it or not, hopefully you like it. But if, regardless, that's my job is to write the, uh, the material for our life groups and to, to teach some of the, the, the midweek classes here, including the partnership class. So hopefully I've either seen you or will be seeing you shortly in our partnership classes as you uh, continue to get involved with Crosspoint. But um, I'm here today filling for Pastor David. He's uh, spent time with family, um, as no doubt many, if not most of us, or all of us have gotten a chance to do uh, over the holiday season. So um, <clears throat> very anxious uh, to get started, very um, excited to be here with you. So let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, um, such a, a genuine and pure and elementary thing to talk about today, the gospel. You are our Prince of Peace. You are our intercession. You stand between us and God and remove hostility. I pray that you will be with us today as we open your, your word, as we look to your word for truth, for influence, um, as we shun other types of influence. Looking to the world, or shunning the world, looking to the word for, for guidance and truth because you are the wonderful counselor. I pray that you will be with us today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be, uh, it's our last message in this series. Uh, we spent the last three weeks, this is the fourth and final week in our current series. Um, and we've been the same passage for the last four weeks. We've been talking about the different names and roles of the born child or Jesus as he was prophesied to come into the world, and we've been talking, uh, three weeks ago, we talked about Wonderful Counselor, and then two weeks ago, we talked about Mighty God. Last week, we talked about the Everlasting Father, and this week, we are at Prince of Peace. Um, one of the most interesting things about this passage to me is that throughout this passage, as well as all of Scripture, but this passage in particular, what we begin to see is this passage takes very, a lot of care to highlight that Jesus is both human and divine. And so we're going to look through this passage and, and see that he points us to those things with some very obvious and, and conspicuous ways and then some very inconspicuous ways um, where you have to look and study to, to find out those truths. Then we're going to close out in Romans um, just talking about and expositing the, the gospel, the beautiful news that gives us all hope um, and removes hostility between us and God. So, we're going to start off in, in this passage. I'm going to read from verse 6. So, if you will read with me Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. It says, for, us, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Lord of hosts will do this. So again, no doubt we're familiar with this passage, uh, but today we're going to focus on Prince of Peace. So when you think of term peace, and we'll get into this in a little more detail, but right now when you think of the word peace, this is, he's the prince of peace. This is not Jesus being the, 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 the prince of, of kumbaya and old lang syne and puppies and cotton candy. This is not like you're friends with, you know, there's peace between us. We're not, you know, this is, Jesus is the prince of restoration between us, a fallen creation, sinful people, and a righteous God whose standard is righteous 
and unwavering. He is the Prince of Peace who stands between us and removes that hostility so that we can be restored to God. That is what today is about. That is what Prince of Peace is, has been, and will always be him being our mediator, removing the offense, removing the hostility between us and a righteous God. So, again, I mentioned this passage points out both the divinity and the humanity of this child who was born that we know is Christ. Um, but it starts a little bit earlier in chapter 7. So let's look quickly at Isaiah 7, uh, 14. We'll put it up here. Um, and the promise is, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We'll come back to that later. That's important. And, he, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. So the reason this passage and the rest of Scripture takes such care to illustrate the fact that Jesus is both human and divine is because it points to him being Emmanuel, the Savior, the one who comes to remove hostility between us and God. And Prince of Peace, the fourth name we're talking about, really is built on the foundation of the other three names and roles in this passage. The wonderful counselor. He is all-knowing. He is perfect. Because he is all-knowing, his advice is perfect. Because he is all-knowing, his words and, and, and message to us in Scripture is unwavering and true. Because he is all-knowing, we can trust him. That is the divinity of him being our wonderful counselor. But the humanity of him being our wonderful counselor is that he is a listener and that he is a friend. He is a companion. The divinity of him being a mighty God, we literally just sang about it. He's never lost a battle. With the lyrics of the song we sang this morning. The divinity of him being mighty God is that he is a warrior. He will fight for his sheep. He will pursue us. He will restore us. He will redeem us. He will sustain us. That's the divinity. That's the divine nature of him being the mighty God. He is his warrior. He has never lost a battle. The humanity side of this is that he is what we desire in our closest of friends and companions. He is loyal. He will never turn his back on his sheep. The divine nature of him being the everlasting father is that he is infinite. He has no beginning or end. We'll talk about that in more detail later. He's eternal. I know that's hard for us to think about this, but I would encourage you, try to think about this at some point multiple times dwell on it he is eternal and our minds can't comprehend that because everything that you and I know is temporal he is infinite we are finite our relationships our jobs our careers our time on this earth is finite he is the only thing that is infinite the pleasure we experience on earth, the pain we experience on earth is finite. He is infinite. That's the divine side of being the everlasting father. Never come to an end. The humanity side of that is that he is relational. When you look at the way Christ addresses his dad, he cries out, Abba, Father. He cries out, that would roughly translate to the way we would call someone daddy today. I have a, th a little over three and a half year old and an 18 month old and a lot of joys and pains and come with that as well but one of the, uh, my favorite things is just when they call me daddy. My little 18 month old, she doesn't have a, a exhaustive vocabulary yet. She probably will because her daddy never shuts up, so she hears a lot of words. Um, but when she runs to me and she's just like, Dada, 
that paints a clear picture to me of how I should address my everlasting father. He is divine, but he's also daddy. He's relational. You can approach him. He's approachable. And then we get to Prince of Peace, which is where we'll spend our time today. So quickly, we're going to run through this passage, set up basically the, the meat of today's message. So let's look quickly at Isaiah 6 and 7. Starting in verse 6, the first part is the nature of this child. You see the nature of this child in verse 6. It says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The child being born is the humanity side of this child. He is literally coming into the world the same way that you and I and everybody you know comes in this world, and that is through childbirth. You cannot be more human than that. He's coming in flesh, childbirth. A child is born. It's the humanity side, the human side of this child. But then the very next statement illustrates the divine side of this child. A son is given. Not a son is given to Mary. It's just very, very important. A child is born to Mary. A son is given to humanity. Because we need a prince of peace. We need an intercessor who stands before us to remove that hostility. We are sinful people in light in front of an infinite and righteous God whose standard will not waver. We must be righteous. A child is born to Mary. A son is given to humanity who will live the life that we can't live. He will meet the standard. He will fulfill the requirements that we are unable to meet and fulfill, which is perfection so that he could live that life, die as a perfect man, and then stand between us and God and say, you put their sin on my record. I will take their sin, and I will restore unity and accord with creation and creator. What a phenomenal message. So the nature of this child, a son is born, a child is born, a son is given. When you get into the, the more lofty theological circles, there's a pretty big word that's tied to this. It's called the hypostatic union. And all that means is there are two natures of Christ. He is both divine and both human in one person. And again, that's hard to comprehend because we've never seen that. We never will see that again. But I'm gonna paint a picture to you today why that has to happen. It has to happen this way for multiple reasons. He had to be born as a child, so he met the human requirement. He, he could actually die on the cross and again, go through life, the temptations, the struggles, face the things that we face. He had to be human to do that. A God conquering that would not have been adequate. But he had to be divine and that he had to be born of a virgin because here's why this is so cool to me and not many people understand this. Please listen. The virgin birth is not some antiquated thing that churches teach because it's cool. It is phenomenally cool. Don't get me wrong, but that's not why we teach it. It's not this antiquated doctrine. Some churches have jettisoned it from the teaching because it seems old and antiquated, and they don't understand why it's important. Here's why it's important. If Jesus were conceived of Joseph and Mary, guess what he inherits from Joseph? Sin. He is born in sin, the very sin he came to this earth to save us from. If he is conceived of Joseph and Mary, he is born in sin like you and I are born in sin. And that may not resonate. Think about this if you have children or nieces or nephews. I say this frequently. Do you have to teach these children to lie and steal and cheat, to fight? The joy of Christmas morning when your kids are opening up presents and then the Havoc when they're fighting over them in 20 minutes. Pushing each other down. That's my toy. That's my toy. We spend our time as parents trying to teach that out of them. That is their nature, to be selfish. We are born in sin. You don't teach your children to do that. If you do, woe to your children. 
We spend our time trying to train them, mold them, shape them, and lead them in the way of Christ. If Jesus were conceived of Joseph and Mary, he inherits Joseph's sin and at birth is disqualified from the cross. Let that sink in. At birth, disqualified from the cross. He would not be an adequate sacrifice. He would be a sinful person dying for sinful people, and we would still be dead in our sin. Also, if he is conceived of Joseph and Mary, he has a point of origin. He did not exist, did not exist. He's conceived. Now he exists, which means he, he's, if he has a point of origin, it means he is created. And if he is created, what can he not be? The creator. He is the creator. He is not a part of creation. He is the creator. And he came into this world as a perfect child, was born a perfect child without inheriting Joseph's sin or the sin of man, as Romans 5 tells us. For just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, all men die because all men sin. It's Romans 5.12. We inherit sin from the lineage of Adam through our father. We are born sinful. Christ had to break that. And he did so by coming into this world born of a virgin. He is divine, but also human. Next in verse 6, the nature of this child is the government is on his shoulders. The government will be on his shoulders. He will rule and he will reign. Matthew 28, 18, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And when we read that, when we hear that, most of us probably understand all authority on heaven has been given to him. He runs, he is authoritative in heaven. He is divine. But the government has been put on his shoulder, which also means that all authority on heaven has been given to him and all authority on earth has been given to him. Everything is under his reign and his control. The government will be on his shoulder. Now there's an important concept here when we talk about him being the government reigning Isaiah 22, 22 and Revelation 3 both refer to him as being the key. And that's another important message that's throughout Scripture because you see in Psalms, he says, open up ye gates. Gates are there to be locked and keep things out. Open up ye gates because Jesus is the key to the gates opening. In John 10, he says, I am the door. Doors are shut to keep things out. The door opens because Jesus is the key. You cannot pass from this side being fallen, sinful people to before God standing as righteous without the key who is Jesus Christ. He is the key to the lineage of David, the house of David, which is salvation. Jesus, this child is the key. There is no other way to it. There's no way to subvert that. You're not going to come around a back door. You're not going to find a loophole. It's through Jesus and faith alone. Next we see in verse 6, the, we saw the nature. This is the child's nature. He's going to be human and he's going to be divine because that's what we needed in a Savior. He has to be both. That's his nature. And his nature is to reign and rule and he's authoritative in heaven and he's authoritative on earth. And then we see in 6C, and this is what you're going to call him. This is the roles that he's going to play. He's going to be the wonderful counselor. He's going to be the mighty God who fights for you when we shake our puny fists in rebellion. I would rather have this. I would rather live this way. He's going to fight for you. He's going to be the everlasting father who is present and his reign will never end. And then we get today to Prince of Peace. But not only do we see the child's nature in verse 6, then later in 6 we see his name. In 7 we see his effect. This is the big picture, guys. I hope you're 
I love the, the minutia of the gospel, all the details and the cool and the small little things you've got to study to pick out. But I also am a big picture guy. What's the big picture? What's happening here? What's happening here is the effect, the effect of him being both God and human to save us standing before God, both divine and human, interceding for us to our creator, whose standard is perfection. And he's going to do it by being a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and a prince of peace. Those are his names. What's the effect of all that? Pastor Michael calls that the so what? What's the effect of all of those things, of his nature and his names and his roles? What's the effect? And the effect is this. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. His kingdom will never stop growing. His kingdom will never end. And there's that word peace again. The increase of his government, the government that he came to rule, the reign, the government on his shoulders, that will never end. The increase will never end. And the peace that he stands to make between us, the fallen people, and God, a righteous God, that peace will never stop. We experience that peace when we initially repent and accept Christ as our Savior. And then as believers, we experience that peace every time we go to God in the name of Christ to repent. That peace is initial in salvation, and it is repetitive in repentance. Why do you think we pray in Christ's name? Because apart from Christ, we have no audience with God. We close our prayers saying, in Christ's name, God, because of Christ, I can come to you because I'm covered in his blood. He has taken away the offense. He has removed the iniquity. My sin is on him, and I have unity with you. And because of that, I can come to talk to you. The cool thing about this promise is that it's eternal. We want to reference Psalm 89.4. He says, I will establish your offspring forever, and I will build your throne for all generations. So it's not going to end. It's never going to end. It's always going to grow, and it's never going to end. That promise is not time-locked, if you will. He's not promising just the people who are reading this passage, or the people he wrote the passage. He's promising this to everyone who reads this passage. If you are a people of faith, I will establish your generation. And then when they're established, they become part of that promise. And then their generation. So essentially, he's saying, Jason, as a man of faith, you teach your children. You raise your children. And I will establish your faith. I will establish your generation. And then I will establish their generation. And then I will establish every subsequent generation who responds to me in faith. It will never end, and it will continue to grow. That's the everlasting Father. Not temporal, but eternal. Next you see something that's key to this passage in Isaiah. He says, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. With justice and righteousness. What does this mean? Simply and bluntly put, you are not going to back your way into salvation. That's what that means. That God has a standard, and that standard is righteousness, and he is just and righteous, and he is not going to back off of that standard. He's not going to make an exception for that standard. He's not going to waver in that standard. The standard is complete righteousness. And we are born in sin. That is a hopeless story, if not for Christ, our Prince of Peace. That is a hopeless story. Despair. I can imagine physical and emotional fatigue knowing that there's a sin. That's how I felt in math class. I'm a teacher. Anybody who teaches math, that's me. There's a standard of, of what it takes to pass math. And here's me down here. 
to very crude, and that analogy breaks down very, very quickly when you compare it to salvation. But the standard is complete righteousness, perfection, not 99% as if we could do that anyway. That's the standard, and we are born sinful, born disqualified. You're not going to sneak in. You're not going to sneak in. And what happens here <clears throat> is it does, you're not going to sneak in because of your good works. You're not going to sneak in because you have this resume of good deeds. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, let's, let's consider Abraham for just, for just a quick second. Um, you're not going to back in with good deeds. Actually, we'll get to Abraham in a second. I want, I want to save that for just a little bit. But this standard is so lofty. And apart from Christ, our Prince of Peace, there's no hope. There's just utter despair. Now, finally, that we've painted the picture of where we are. We paint a picture of reality. Not of potpourri and flowers and fun stuff. The down and dirty reality. We are sinful people before a righteous God, and that standard for us being righteous will not ever waver. This is where we look to the Prince of Peace because he stands between us and God as the peacemaker. I know that your creation is sinful, and I know that your standard is righteous, but put my perfect record in their place, and you take their sin and put it on me. What do you think Christ was doing on the cross? What do you think when he died and descended to hell, what was he doing there? He was having the wrath of God poured out on his head for all his sheep who would profess faith in him. He was not down there reclining in a lounger just waiting for three days. He was down there experiencing pain and torture, which is the concentration of God's wrath for all who would profess faith in him. That's what hell is, and it's a reality. And our Prince of Peace stands between us and God and says, let me take that for you so that you can be restored to your father. The Hebrew word in Isaiah, peace, is, is shalom. And that's one that we, you probably hear frequently. And it's um, loosely translated means to make whole, to have no iniquity, friendly. There's, there's, there's no rift there, I guess which is very adequate for, for what we're talking about. As a matter of fact, it's not as adequate. It's, it's the past we're talking about. But Paul uses another word um, called irene in the New Testament, the, the Greek word. And, um, and that word means to, to bring unity and accord. So this passage talks about him being the prince of peace in the Old Testament. And a different word is used to communicate the same thing in the New Testament. That Christ is the Prince of Peace. He stands to, to bring wholeness between us and God, to restore freeliness between us and God. And the New Testament word says that he stands to bring unity and accord between us and God. It is in this context that Christ is the Prince of Peace or the Prince of Restoration. Psalm 32, 1 through 2 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So now you're probably thinking, if you're a thinker, if you're following with me, you're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa hold on, Jason. How can, how can someone's transgressions be forgiven, and how can their sin be covered, and how can God not count their iniquity against them when you just told me that God's righteous standard will never waver? And the answer, church, it's the Prince of Peace. It is because of him that our iniquity will not be put on us. It is because of him that our transgressions can be forgiven. It's because of him and him alone, exclusively. It is available nowhere else, through Christ only. I did say that standard won't waver, and it will never waver but the standard was met in the Prince of Peace. 
and we simply go to God in repentance and faith and ask God to give us Christ's record and let Christ take our sin. So that is this passage, a beautiful, beautiful passage of Christ's nature, the son, the child's nature, the child's name, and the child's effect is to establish his kingdom to rule and reign forever that will grow and never end. So now we look to Romans to find out what is he saving us from. So if you would turn with me to Romans 3, 21 through 26. And this passage reads this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was, a show, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So let's start off here. What, what's happening here in this passage? This is a closer look at the effect we see in Isaiah 9, verse 7. The effect of what, of what Christ came to do. Verse 21, and this is a shocker for most people. Righteousness does not come through the keeping of the law or works. The law was never meant to give us a formula for salvation because we can never keep it. The law was meant to point us to a savior, to the need of a savior who is met in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. The law was never meant to be a checklist for us. That's called legalism. The law is meant to point us to the need for a savior. So if we can't earn it and we can't keep the law enough to be righteous, then how is this standard ever met? And again, my answer has been the same since I got up here. It's met in the Prince of Peace. He is the answer. He is the key to meeting this righteous requirement. It's satisfied by the Prince of Peace. So now let's look at, consider Abraham. We're not going to go to any passages. If you want to write these down, that's fine. No, these messages are recorded. I would prefer you just lock in and listen and get the, get the notes later from our videos. So let's consider Abraham. Abraham, you see in Genesis, you see in Romans, you see in Galatians, you see in Hebrews, that Abraham, it says it was counted as righteous. Abraham was counted as righteous. Now consider Abraham's resume. Consider the things that he's done, the life that he's lived, and if he is unable to earn righteousness and, and, and looking at his resume, if he has to have righteousness credited to him, what's that say about righteousness? You can't earn it. Look at his resume. If anyone could earn it, it would have been Abraham. I guess he had his ups and downs like most of us, but his resume is pretty impressive. It's a man of faith. But not impressive enough to earn salvation. Not impressive enough to put God in debt for grace. The law, again, wasn't given to show us the way to salvation. The law is given to point us to need for our Savior. And if you're not ever ever go stand before God with your resume and say, look at what I've done. As a matter of fact, there are people who literally tried that. In Matthew, it says, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not, here's the resume unrolling, did I not prophesy in your name, perform many miracles, and cast out many demons? Look at all the things I've done for you, God. I deserve heaven. And his response is no. Depart from me, you wicked people. I never knew you. 
if you stand before God claiming your works and your resume of good deeds, you will be let down. It is not your works. It is righteousness through faith, through the Prince of Peace. We embrace him, and he allows us to have unity in accord with God. It is nothing else. Your works will leave you empty. Let me calm down. Now, we will never earn that salvation. But one thing that's very clear here in verse 22 and 23 is that people misunderstand this, the, the, the term no distinction. So let's look at this quickly because I want to make this crystal clear. Because if you misunderstand this, the, the whole passage flips on its head and becomes anti-gospel. So let's look at this quickly. In verse 22, it says, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wrong way to read this passage is that there is no distinction in righteousness. There absolutely is distinction in righteousness. And that distinction is belief and faith in Christ. The distinction for us to be righteous is to embrace Christ with belief and faith. He says it right there. The righteousness of God through faith for all who believe. That's where you get righteousness, through the Prince of Peace, where he says there is no distinction. It's not in the application of righteousness. It's in the need for righteousness. For there is no distinction. All, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction in our need for the Prince of Peace. There is no distinction in our need for a Savior. No one can say, well, I don't need that. No distinction. There is quite literally distinction in the application of righteousness, and that comes only through faith and belief, where there is no distinction is in your need to be made righteous. Think about that. All of us need it. We're born in sin. God's standard will never waver. We need Christ to mediate unity and accord. And he did so through his spilt blood. Verses 24 and 25 in Romans 3, we see the Prince of Peace. The only thing that brings righteousness is the atonement of the Prince of Peace. Verse 24, he says this, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God will put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be covered or to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So in verse 24, we see that we are all sinful. And we see that this Redemption and righteousness is only available through Christ. We've covered that. That's clear. There's no debating that from this passage. Verse 25 is very, it's a phenomenal truth. It says that God put Christ forward. Guys, please do not think that this was plan B or plan C and that God wanted something else to happen and we foiled his plan because we're just so whatever. And he said, okay, well, finally, I'll send Christ as my plan B. Christ was plan A. He is the plan of righteousness and restoration. There is no plan B. It's Christ and Christ alone. It was God's desire to put Christ forward as our propitiation, as our sacrifice. So how does putting Christ forward, how does putting Christ forward preserve God's righteousness? And it's seen here at the end of verse, at the end of verse 25. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive by faith. Very explicitly stated. This was to show God's righteousness. How? How, Jason? How? How is it to show his righteousness? Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. What that means is Abraham, it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Because Abraham lived in the Old Testament and Christ didn't die until much, much later. But because God is all-knowing, the wonderful counselor, because he's all-knowing, he credited Christ's death to Abraham and gave it to him as credit because he professed faith and believed in Christ. 
He passed over former sins. Now, let me clarify this, because as a high school teacher, I see this all the time. Students, everyone, I see it manifest in students. Adults do this too. We act like we get away with sin. We're getting away with it, like we're fooling God. Like, God's not thinking, we're tricking him, because I'm doing these things and nothing's happening. And that reinforces a, a nature of obstinance and defiance to righteousness. But please don't be fooled. You're not fooling him. You're not getting away with it. Romans 2 says, wrath is being stored up for you. And if you go before God without Christ on your behalf, that will be unleashed on you as we talked about in hell. You will pay the penalty for your sin unless you have Christ do it for you. Pay the penalty for your sin. He passed over former sins. Again, think back to Abraham. Credited him as righteous. Without a plan for Christ to be our propitiation, to be our prince of peace. A lot of P words there. Our prince of peace. God would not have been just to credit righteousness to anyone. He would have been unjust, which undoes Isaiah verse 6. That that kingdom will be upheld with righteousness and justice. Without Christ's plan A to preserve that, he, he would be unjust to justify anyone. That is how putting Christ forward preserves his righteousness. Because again, Christ stands between us. I'm gonna say that over and over and over again. Christ stands between us, a fallen creation, and God, a righteous standard, and he makes peace. He takes away that iniquity. Second Samuel 12, verse nine and verse 13. This is, this is a challenge this is a challenge. Not to understand because it's clear, but to embrace. This is a challenge. This is the, this is the, the story or the, the account of, of David. When he is on, on the top of his palace and he looks out and sees a beautiful woman taking a bath on her roof and he's attracted to her. She's not his wife. But as the king, you know, he can do what he wants. So he sends for her, brings her into his private quarters has an affair, she gets pregnant, and then in a worldly scheme that would seem clever to the world, says, I'm the king, we're at war, I'm gonna put her husband on the front line. I'm gonna send him to battle, put him on the front line, and then I'm gonna kill him, because the people on the front line didn't survive. And that's where this passage picks up. So David, just immersed in adultery and murder, he says, he has asked, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite, and you have taken his wife to be yours. That's why he sent Uriah to die, was because once he's de dead, I can marry her and cover up the time frame of her getting pregnant. David then said to Nathan, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin." and you will not die today. But Jason, you just said that the standard would never waver. The standard's wavering here. No, it's not. David is a man of faith who fell drastically into some really nasty stuff. But God's son, our propitiation, the Prince of Peace is over all of that. And despite that, adultery and murder gone. I'm not justifying adultery and murder. I'm saying that God, our God, and our Prince of Peace is bigger than anything you can do. Don't sin to experience grace, but Romans is very clear. We cannot out -sin grace. The Prince of Peace stands to make peace between us and God. This is where my high school students get it wrong. This is where humanity gets it wrong. They think they're getting away with it. They think that God passing over sins and delaying his wrath until we stand before him on judgment day, they think it's over. 
because there's not immediate consequence that it's over. I got away with it. They don't understand what I'm about to show you. For believers, we're no doubt struggle with sin, mired in sin. We're sinful people. Being a believer is not going to make you perfect. It's going to make you look to God and repent through Christ when you realize you're not. But for believers, this is the truth. If you look up here on the screen with me, Isaiah 53, 5. This is the truth for believers mired in sin. But he was pierced for our transgression and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It is by his wounds that we are healed. Our healing, his wounds. His punishment, our peace. The Prince of Peace purchased that with his blood. That's good news. That's where the story flips over. And it's not hopeless and full of despair. It's full of hope and full of joy. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in him, the Prince of Peace, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could be righteous. Jesus, on the cross, dead, descended to, to the pit of Sheol, descended to hell to pay our penalty, and he stood there and he took the cup of wrath that God has for you and for me and for everyone who believes in him. He took that cup and he drank it drop. Not a drop of wrath is left for those who are professing faith in Christ, the Prince of Peace. Not one drop. That's the good news, that in Christ we have peace with God. He is our substitute. He is our intercessor, our mediator. But here is the despair for people who don't know Christ. Romans 2, verse 5. Very sobering. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Should you find yourself before God without Christ as your intercessor, there will be no drinking of God's wrath. You will face it every drop, and it will never end. Ever. God, I don't want to scare you. I want you to know the truth. I would never try to scare you into embracing Christ. But there is a scary reality to facing God without Christ's record. And I would be malfeasant if I stood in this pulpit and didn't tell you the truth. It is a reality. It is scary. But it is not what should motivate you. What should motivate you is righteousness. There is a choice here. We have to, a response to make. And it baffles me how anyone seeing the truth of Scripture, I've not been doing any kind of hoodoo or magic. I didn't rewrite this. This is literally straight from Scripture. How anyone could see the truth of Christ standing between us, wanting to take our place, wanting to take our sin, wanting to consume God's wrath on our behalf, that we would shun that and say, no thanks, I'll stand before God and I'll take the wrath of my sin on myself. Baffling that we would continue to shake our fists in rebellion and defiance and disbelief when God has given us an answer. He's given us a Prince of Peace. He's given us hope through Christ. Finally, last passage, and we're done, is Romans, not Romans, excuse me, Hebrews 9, 15 and 16. And this is, this is the, the, the summative point of the whole message today. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. There's a new covenant. He's the mediator of this new covenant. 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since death has occurred that redeems them from transgression committed in the old covenant. There's a new covenant. The new covenant comes through the death of the Prince of Peace and it saves you from the sins you committed in the old covenant under the law. The law is here. We sin. Christ in the new covenant is here to make that right. Here's the cool part, 16. For where a will is involved, when I say that it is God's will to put Christ forward, it is Christ's will to die for you, I don't mean just his desire, I mean literally it is his will. His last dying testament is to be your propitiation, and he said that right here. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. A will, a legal will, is not enacted until the establisher of that will dies. Then the will goes into effect. His will and testament was to be your propitiation. And he had to die to secure it. The Christmas story is marvelous. The Prince of Peace is gracious. And I hope that it's crystal clear now. I hope that nothing I've said has confused you further. But there are only two sides to this battle. There, we're all going to stand before God. There are those who do so with Christ's record and those who do so without. And if you're here today and you know you have Christ, don't check out when we go to response time. Be gracious. Be thankful that Christ dug you out of the muck and mire and polished you off and gave you grace and mercy and peace. Don't check out. Respond with faith and joy. Let your heart be uplifted that there is hope for you. And if you do not know Christ, I pray that the word of Scripture today has pierced your heart and that you will not go one second further. That you will not start a new year without faith. That this will be the last day and the last year you will ever be without hope and despair. I hope that there's a response to be had.